Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Let's open the file on Poppy is a pain in the neck. Okay, on today's show, Jen, we're going to be talking about a student who has social skill deficiencies. And she became that kid, and I'm using air quotes, and we don't want any children in schools to be perceived as that kid by the other students. So hopefully we're going to be shining some light on how we can avoid your kid from becoming that kid like Poppy. Um, we, We do have a guest, and it is Robin Fox. Robin Fox is a has a master's in education and is a social emotional learning educator, and we're going to introduce Robin at our Rewind because she's our Rewind guest. But we're going to keep you on pins and needles before Robin joins us. And Jen, start with the facts on Poppy. Okay, so Poppy is a pain in the neck. And as Julie said, we don't like any child to be perceived as a pain in the neck. But here are the facts. So Poppy was in the third grade when her parents contacted me. Uh, She had an IEP, an individualized education program, uh, which meant she was identified under the federal law, the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, as a student who required special education and related services. And her category, the, the label, quote unquote, that was checked off was ADHD, which was her disability. And, um, you know, ADHD has various different types. There are different types of attention deficit disorders. For her, for Poppy, it was very much on that hyperactive piece. Um, And she was extremely impulsive. She was very bright. She really wanted to interact with her peers and to be um, making friends. But she uh, engaged in a number of behaviors that were very off-putting to her peers, Um, you know, she was kind of a nudge. That's an old word, world word. But she would um, her overtures to make friends were often uh, somewhat disruptive and annoying to her peers. So, um, you know, some examples of the kinds of things she'd engage in. You know, she'd be in chorus, um, and she wanted to be friends with the girl who was standing in front of her in the chorus. You know, and she would tap her shoulder all the time thinking it was funny and and try to get her attention. And the girl was annoyed by this. And, and it had the opposite effect of what Poppy was hoping for, which is that the girl wanted to be moved to a different part of the, the stage because she didn't want to have Poppy um, touching her shoulder all the time. She'd, you know, take materials from uh, the kid next to her in class thinking it was cute. Um, and, you know, that that was annoying to that student. So it was this kind of thing that in kindergarten, first grade, second grade was becoming just annoying to the peers. But by the time I got involved, the approach that the team was taking to these kinds of, they were becoming almost disruptive behaviors to her peers was to remove Poppy from the mainstream classroom and bring her either to the resource room or to the principal's office sometimes, um, the main office sometimes. And so Poppy reacted to that very negatively because of course, like most children, you want to be in class with all of your friends and your peers and not be seen as different in any way. And she was 
reacting to the removal very negatively. And so by the time I got involved, we had gone from annoying, had escalated to disruptive, had escalated to tantrum behaviors. When uh, the teacher would bring the person in to remove her from the class, it got to the point where she was um, having such escalated fits that they would um, have to physically remove her, sometimes physically restrain her, which of course is extraordinarily traumatic and upsetting for her and her peers and, and further separated her from her, her peers uh, in every way. Um, and so it had gotten to a crisis point when they called me. And Jen, just before we get on to the law, what ended what what ended ha- what ended up happening with Poppy? What ended up happening is that um, the the team agreed once I got involved um, to bring. They agreed to a few things. First, we had to get out of crisis mode, right? So. First, we had to find a way to not have her being removed in, and certainly not restrained on a frequent basis. So it started with um, bringing in a one-to-one paraprofessional for her uh, who was trained in recognizing when Poppy was becoming dysregulated and might you know, escalate into a, a tantrum. And that helped to get the situation from crisis to um, manageable. And uh, then the team brought in um, and started to provide a consultant who had expertise on um, social skills and providing instruction to students with disabilities in that arena. And she was uh, engaging in a social skills group uh, weekly and getting uh, instruction in her special education program as well from a number of different uh, providers. And we added, you know, a number of goals to her IEP around social competencies. Uh, You know, I always say that parents, when I don't hear from them after a period of time, it's usually good news. Uh, I don't like to have to be in a family's life for um, many, many years, although that does happen. So I didn't hear from them after, you know, the third or fourth IEP team to review the changes we had made, which I hope means that um, Poppy's doing well. Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, before we get to the law, um, you know, if I had to just listen to this story, right, I say, you know, Poppy had never been taught her physical and social boundaries, right? Right. And so she finally had some instruction um, and things obviously improved. And and one of the things that we're going to want to talk about when we do the, ro- the rewind with Robin is if this sounds like a student you know, or this sounds like your child, hopefully we're going to have some real takeaways for you that you'll be able to use. So Jen, let's get into the law. Yeah. So the number one implication in most of these scenarios is whether or not the child is receiving a free and appropriate public education, um, what we call FAPE under the the law. And, you know, to that end, FAPE is defined as including the obligation that a student's educational needs are met in the least restrictive environment. We call it LRE. Um, to the maximum extent appropriate, students with disabilities are supposed to be educated in the program they would be receiving if they didn't have disabilities. Uh, that doesn't mean that that can always be accomplished. Many students do have to be pulled from the mainstream for some part of their day for instruction. But when that's happening frequently, and it's happening more frequently than the IEP calls for because of behavior, then we're running pretty far afoul of what the IDEA contemplates, uh, which is to make sure that students with disabilities are mainstreamed as, as much as possible. And the fact that she was being removed even more frequently than her IEP called for because of her behavior, which of 
course, was making the situation much worse, um, is a violation of the least restrictive environment provision um, until, you know, the team got together and, and came up with a plan of how to keep her um, in the mainstream more frequently and successfully. So that's the first thing. And, you know, the other thing that I'll mention is, um, you know, that there is this thing called present levels of academic achievement and functional performance. And in the case of Poppy, we're very interested in making sure that parents understand there's there's a difference between your academic achievement, which is generally your, you know, reading, language arts, math, science, history, which is very different from your non-academic educational needs, being, being the functional performance, which really are the skills we need for day-to-day living, which includes social, behavioral, emotional, um, all of those skills. And so in Poppy's case, this was making sure that her social competencies were appropriately evaluated and those present levels around her social skills, her strengths and her weaknesses were identified on the IEP and that those weaknesses and how they adversely impacted her in her uh, in education turned into the IEP goals. Yeah. So, um, very good Anything point. Else we have to think yeah, about before the, uh, before I think we... so on the law. Yeah. One yeah. more point and maybe another okay. will, will occur to one of us as I talk it out. But while Julie and I try very hard to um, keep these episodes um, uh, focused on the federal law and the requirements that exist in all of the states under the IDEA, there is no federal law that governs restraint or seclusion. That is not yet. There have been a number of attempts to, to create legislation in this arena, but not yet. So far, there is no federal law that governs it. But most states, do have their own laws on how, when, and very specifically where a student can be restrained or secluded from the um, the mainstream, and restraint in particular, because um, there's a, a whole body of research, and certainly Julie and I have a lot of experiences, unfortunately, where students have been restrained in schools. It can become extremely traumatic for the child. Mm-hmm. It can be traumatic for the other children around mm-hmm. the child, um, and it is a, a measure that should not be taken easily. Of course, we want everyone to be safe in our schools, but when young children little children in particular, are being um, frequently restrained by the adults in their school, it becomes really hard to reestablish that trust with the child and can become its own issue. So uh, if you're unfortunately experiencing that a a student you're working with or your child is um, being restrained by the adults in school, I urge you to look at your state law on this. Most states do require that parents be informed of the restraint and, and in fact, how they are informed and the limited circumstances in, in under which restraint is appropriate. So I just want to make sure that I mention that. Right. And, you know, Jen, I think the other thing that we can talk about is what the IDEA says about the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act says about positive behavioral supports, right? Yeah. So if your child, and I'll have Jen uh, hop onto that uh, right after I say this quick thing, is, you know, you can always ask for a functional behavior assessment. And that is an assessment that looks at the the reason, the purpose um, behind a behavior, right? And so, you know, in order to put a um, a responsible behavior support plan together, 
we first have to understand why is the student even having this behavior, right? And so one of the things that I would want folks to know is that, um, well, as an example, here in our state, um, you can't have restraint and seclusion be a part of a behavior support plan a behavior intervention plan. But this is, again, where you, like Jen said, please check with your own state as to what your laws, statutes, and or regulations are around restraint and seclusion. So Jen, talk a little bit about positive behavioral supports. Yes. So in the federal law, in the the IDEA, the um, Congress did add the uh, requirement that schools use positive behavioral supports in the education of children, the special education of children with disabilities. Um, And, you know, there's not a lot of definition in the statute as unfortunately is often the case. Um, There's mandates, but not not always a lot of guidance. And then it becomes up to educators and um, sometimes lawyers and advocates to figure out what was meant and and sometimes judges. Uh, But the the point here is that we are supposed to be focusing on positive behavioral support. And um, that's something that, you know, punitive actions like removing a kid from the class when they're impulsive and acting um, inappropriately without it being something that's dangerous, you know, would certainly um, call into question whether your your approach is positive or in fact is punitive. And so I guess that's as good a segue as any to introduce uh, The Rewind and our guest, Robin. Yes. And let me just say a quick word about Robin. As I said before, she has a master's in education and she's a social emotional learning educator. She's a lifelong meditator, a professional improv actor, She's been working in private and public schools from K to from K to 12 as a special education, I'm sorry, special educator, professional trainer, and consultant for over 40 years. And her social emotional learning curriculum, Social Eyes Together, transforms children's lives to walk forward into their future with self-confidence, compassion, and resilience. Robin is also a member of the Connecticut Social and Emotional Learning Collaborative. She's also part of a working committee revising the components of social, emotional, and intellectual habits, grades 4 through 12, for the Connecticut State Department of Education. And you can find her website at www.social-eyes.org. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much. This is uh, such a great topic. I'm really happy to be speaking about it because, you know, they, there's a saying, um, fences make good neighbors. Well, yes. <laughs> boundaries are a core uh, component of good relationships. And we need to teach our all students how to have good relationships, and especially working with students who aren't uh, by osmosis picking up some of the cues and some of the behaviors that will promote good relationships. Yes, it, it's uh, you know a point that is so well made, and it is really becoming more and more of a focus in education in general that we have to to- take a look at those social and emotional um, skills. That that is such a part of education. Uh, I mean, what what. A successful adult doesn't have good relationships, right? Isn't that key to everything? Yes. And you know, Robin, I know you're going to share an exercise with us today. And before you get into it, um, 
you know, look, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that your child's IEP, Individualized Education Program, include a goal or goals um, around teaching these social competencies. And Robin came armed today with an exercise that she's going to do with me and Jen to um, perhaps share with folks who might want to incorporate this into their own school's um, activities. Or at the family dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> because this, this is um, a great exercise that I created called One, Two, Three, Done. Basically, it is purporting that anything that you need to communicate, you do in three sentences, one, two, three, then you're done. Because you need to wait, pick up the social cues, the physical cues, the verbal cues of the person you're speaking with, and give them a chance to give their input, ask questions, or make some sign that they really want you to keep talking. Um, so checking in um, with the people that you're communicating with is another way of creating boundaries. A lot of times we're happy when our uh, our children on the spectrum are communicating and sometimes or children with ADHD or other ADHD. Yes. Right. Um, our children in general are communicating <laughs> and, and um, it is um, it's wonderful to share your experiences, share your excitement about something that you're interested in. And yet when we don't have a good boundary on that, it's not a conversation. It's a soliloquy. And yeah. So this is about whether it's physically being aware of boundaries or in conversation being aware of boundaries, helping us to do that. So it, it really is so simple. So let's say that you um, have uh, an exciting adventure that you had at school um, and you wanted to share it. So you want to just say three things about it to the person you are speaking with. This does a number of things. It actually helps you to cognitively organize the important parts of what you're going to talk about so that you're not getting lost in details or getting you know, into uh, uh, an adjacent uh, subject while you're talking about something that you want to really clearly speak about. So you speak three sentences and then you're done. You let the other person speak three sentences um, or, or more because you're not in control of other people's behavior. And that's another thing that we need to understand. This is just about our own presentation of ourself to the world and to, you know, to other people. So we are not in control of what anybody else's reaction is. But if we can get this embedded in our communication style, it will carry us through to interviews, to, uh, to parties, to uh, when we're at a, a, a social function. We know that we can contribute and then stop and listen. Right. So there's an improv game called Beginning, Middle, and End. And I often teach this at the same time because it's fun and, and kids really like it. So one person's the beginning, next person's the middle, and the third person's the end. Because we can't just tell kids, okay, one, two, three, you're done. And that's, you know, do it, go do it. We need to give them the skill to be able to organize around actually completing that task successfully. So um, it, it could be as simple as I have the first sentence and I say, um, you know, Jack woke up and found, uh, to his surprise, that he had wings on his back. The next person might say he 
tucked them into his coat and went to school. The third person could end the story and say, when he got there, he was surprised to see his classmates flying around the room. Mm-hmm. So, or it could be as simple as I, I got up, I had pancakes, I got on the bus. Yeah. So we're, we're really just trying to um, help the brain become accustomed to um, delivering information in the most succinct way possible and then letting another person into your world. Hey, Jen and Julie, are you willing to practice one, two, three, done? Yes. I will say as an attorney that I repeatedly say that it takes more than three sentences for me to clear my throat, but I will do my best because (laughs) I clearly need this skill. Right. Yes. Yes. Because we all know how we've, we've been kind of trapped by the person who goes on and on and on, and we don't want to be that person. No, we don't want to be the pain in the neck. You're right. But, you so know, I think what's important in this is, is this is this is how we teach it. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, once you get up and running and learning something, you can fiddle around with it. Right. But this is to teach it. Right, Robin? I love that you mentioned that because rules are meant to be broken. But if we're not aware that we're breaking a rule because of a perceived necessity or because we're already reading cues and we can see people are leaning in and they want us to continue or somebody says oh how did how did that happen and we can keep going on yes so this is a rule that we want to embed first and have it be really clear and i still follow this sometimes when i'm with people uh and then you know i do the one two three and then i stop uh so we want to be able to follow the rule and then if the situation is uh, appropriate, we want to break the rule. So yes. All right. Lay it on us. Yeah. So um, what I'd love to do is uh, think of a, a movie or a book that you, or an experience that you've had in the past couple of weeks and just, you know, hit us with one, two, three, and then done. Okay. Who's Thank starting? For, for, uh, for, for doing this. Cause I know I'm putting you on the spot. Here. <laughs> oh, no, I think okay. my friends and family are going to be very grateful that I've learned this skill actually. <laughs> so <laughs> I am, I am someone who goes on and on. Okay. Uh, I'll start and I will start with a movie that we just watched the other night. Um, City Slickers. The movie City Slickers is a family friendly film. It is a story of a bunch of friends who go on a trip to a dude ranch and become even closer. It's sweet and it makes you cry. That was that was amazing. That was I. That is so brilliant because you hit on uh, so many aspects of that film. We got so much information from you in three sentences, and if I may um, observe. Uh, I felt that you were really processing as you were talking instead of just, you know, letting it spill out. And I love that thoughtfulness. I think that that's such a beautiful way to be in this world, to consider the words and really be connected to them in that in that thoughtful way. Thank you. It forced me to. And I'm, <laughs> I, I felt that I had to restrain myself and be thought much more thoughtful about which words I chose. So that's great. And there's hope for you. You're there's learning. hope. <laughs> <laughs> all of us. There's hope for all of us. 
All right, you go next, um, uh, Robin, because I'm still trying to think of what the heck I'm going to movie I'm trying to think of. Go ahead. It can can be an experience. Um, Okay. um, After two days of snow, I started feeling really down and um, uncomfortable. The sun came out the next day, and I went down to clear off my car. As I looked up at the sun and felt the rays coming on me, I just had a new appreciation for sunlight and its healing effect. Oh, that was great. Well, that was nice. I had an experience where we took um, my son, who has a disability, who is um, a young man who has an autism spectrum disorder, Um, We went out on a walk with our brand new dog, Max, who's four months old, and it was his first time on the leash. For the first 10 minutes, he fought us like heck, wanting to get out of his collar and leash, and then he finally got used to it. It was a wonderful walk, and I was so excited because my son walked him the whole time, And it was so purposeful because he had responsibility. He got exercise and he loved it. Wow. That was a lot of information. And that was awesome. So sometimes I I broke the one, two, three rule. Yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and you're uh, pretty masterful at the compound complex sentence. I'm right. But it's all good. It's all good. See, again, like you said, Julie, first of all, not everybody's going to be able to do this easily. Um, yeah, and also, not. when we do this in a group, some of the kids are counting your sentences, right. <laughs> and fingers, which is annoying and helpful at the same time. Right. You know, it's kind of nice that I screwed up because it is it's illustrative. Yes. It's illustrative of the fact that this isn't easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but here's the really cool thing about it. We're all, you know, doing this as a podcast, so you we're not seeing each other. But what I love about the this kind of instruction is the the tools that Robin and other educators provide and teach to students about how to look around at the listeners to their story mm-hmm. to see if they're interested. As you said, are they leaning in? You know, that's something that not all people pick up on those cues. It, you know, leaning in or you know looking. Looking, uh, nodding your head as if you want the person to go on. There are so many nonverbal cues that allow us to know whether we want the person to keep talking. Don't forget the nonverbal cues that uh, show you that you they do not want you to keep talking. <laughs> you know, uh, shifting their legs around so that their legs are facing the door, which in a meeting, look under the table if that's appropriate. If you've dropped something and see where people's legs are, are pointed, because that usually is the direction that they're interested in. And, you know, there's all these little tips that can be so valuable and helpful. Uh, but, but really what we want to teach um, our children is this self-control, this discipline, which is not a bad word. It means mm-hmm. that you are, um, you know, sacrificing some of your immediate desire for a greater goal. And the uh, the fact that you're just saying three sentences is not only about you being concise and clear and waiting for someone else. It's also the kind and generous act of letting them speak. Mm. It shows that you care. Listening is love. 
listening is love, truly listening. And I have a lot of lessons about listening because honestly, we're always preparing the next thing we want to say. We're always, or we're thinking about what we want to make for dinner. There's a lot of disconnect between uh, in a conversation between the the focus of the participants, and um, that's also where the mindfulness part comes in. Learning to um, when you learn to do uh, mindfulness meditation, you're you're training your mind, you're training your thoughts to keep coming back to the same either mantra or breath, and that also is a way that you can learn to listen. Because if you don't have a really active mind all the time, you become an empathetic listener. And it always, always is felt by the other person. They feel you're listening. They feel that you're really there and present with them. And that's a gift we give to each other. And it builds relationships and makes strong bonds that become, no matter how different we are, we get connected on that primal level. I love that listening is love. It's beautiful. I think I need a poster that says this. Right? It's you also know, such a skill that we use in life, cool. not just in our social re- inter- inter- interactions, but in our our day-to-day lives. I mean, I, I it's one of the things that's funny, Robin, because I'm, I do training of other attorneys in litigation strategy. And one of the things I say all of the time is so many attorneys don't listen. When they're cross-examining a witness, they have their list of you know, 15, 20, 30, whatever the case is questions they want to ask and they're thinking about the next question they want to ask and you miss out on gold as a litigator if you're not listening to what the the witness is saying because most of the time the true nuggets that become relevant to the case are what the witness says that you didn't expect to hear and that wasn't the answer that you were entirely you know so as an example in, in special education law uh, you know, a witness may say, uh, yes, I, I, I did bring that up at the IEP meeting, but it might have been the meeting before. The meeting before? Tell me about the meeting before the IEP meeting. And, mm. you know, that can lead down a whole row of questions about whether the parent was involved in the decision making. So it's it really, it's important across the board to learn that skill. And, you know, well, the take- a- go ahead, Bob. I was going to uh, follow up on, with Jennifer. I have a great exercise that I'd love you to use when you do that. It's called last line listening, and it really trains people to listen without thinking about anything else except focusing on the other person because they have a task at the end of listening that they have to do. And it's really a lovely a lovely exercise that uh, not only teaches you to listen, but when you listen, you find out things that are really uh, deeply uh, connecting about with, with the other person because you are there present in the now moment and the now moment is where life is happening. Mm. And that that's a training to be present. It's a mindfulness. Tra- listening is a mindfulness exercise. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, before we go on to the verdict, I just, I always like to think of the listener <laughs> and sure. what are they taking away from what we've just said? And, and let me just uh, share what I think. I'd, I'd love for people to take away that this is um, a skill that you can incorporate into an IEP goal, right? And, and again, this isn't the be all end all skill. I'm just giving you an example. You know, Poppy will use the one, two, three done methodology exercise. Uh, what would you call it? The one, two, three done um, technique. What would you call the one, two, three done technique mm-hmm. um, in, you know, four out of five exchanges per week with other students, 
that's just an example, okay? Sure. Of course, you'd have to establish baseline, where did she start and all of that. But the other thing that I think is just as equally important here is, you know, so many times um, IEP goals don't have to say how something is being taught. But Mm -hmm. in a case like this, you as the parent can introduce the one, two, three done that is available in Robin's book, Socialize Together, um, and it is available on, on Amazon. But you could also ask for parent training on mm. how a skill mm. like this is being taught. Because if this is oh, not that. something that's practiced at home and at school and Poppy goes, whoa, everybody's like, everybody's <laughs> making me follow this darn thing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just don't want parents to forget about the fact that beyond the IEP goal written in a certain way, you should understand how it's being taught so that you could be supporting the same teaching techniques um, at home. Julie, that's such a great point. And um, I, I, as a person who has a long family history of attention deficit disorder, um, it, it is really important because Poppy may not have parents who are modeling this at home and, and they themselves may have ADHD. And so, um, you know, that's great, great advice. And that, that that belongs back in our the law section because parent training is a related service under the IDEA, uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, under you know along with speech and OT and PT and and all the other uh, wonderful related services. So having said that, let's get to the verdict. So the verdict on this one, uh, Julie, I think is pretty clear, which is that social skills are absolutely necessary skills. They're necessary life skills, and they can be taught for those students who don't come by them naturally. And I love these exercises. I'm so thrilled we had Robin with us. Um, it's social E-Y-E-S, together. You can put that right into Amazon and you'll find our book. Uh, but these these skills can be taught. They must be taught. And we um, can avoid the kind of crisis situation that Poppy got herself into. Right. And you might want to include Robin Fox um, in that search. And, you know, on that note, I'm going to say that love is listening or listening is love. <laughs> I've got that wrong. Listening <laughs> is love. And on that note, we're going to close the file on Poppy is a Pain in the Neck. Thank you, Robin. Thanks, Robin. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed.